So um, this uh, sermon was envisioned about four or five weeks ago when, um, you know, I began to prepare for this collaboration that we have coming up uh, uh, this week. So be praying for your pastors. All of us will be gone for the week. Uh, we're in a collaboration down south with all the other MA church planners and pray for that. But I'm scheduled to give a plenary address there, which is really um, the same title as this title of the sermon even though this sermon will go in a direction that's focusing a little bit more on what we're going to do in our congregational meeting, which is to uh, vote on the position of associate pastor, and particularly as we think about even the pastoral ministry and the way in which it is in succession to the apostles, particularly here, uh, these instructions that are given to the, the apostles. So, so that's sort of the backdrop, but I do want to say that, you know, about the title of the sermon, The Destroyer of the Gods. That sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? It's taken, though, from a highly esteemed early church historian named Larry Hurtado, someone that I've been reading and researching as I prepared this lecture. And it's an incredible study on what distinguished Christians and the community of Christians in the Roman world up to, this is important, Constantine. Up to Constantine and what we would describe as the rise of modern, even modern day Christendom. By Christendom, I mean that when Christianity seized power by virtue of a revolution, military, uh, economic, political, social, academic, uh, the, the goal, the strategy of Christendom, by virtue of it being Christendom, is to seize the powers of the world and to co-opt those powers to expand the kingdom of God. Now, the reason that's significant is because before Christendom, those first three centuries, well, that's where you see this meteoric rise, this meteoric growth in Christian faith, particularly through conversions. That is, before Christians had anything like cultural hegemony, power and influence in the cultural sectors, the church grew. And so he starts off his study by asking the obvious question. In his words, he says, why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? He further explains, to become a Christian in that period was typically fraught with serious potential negative consequences. Some Christians suffered the hostile intentions of political authorities. Much more commonly, early Christians were the objects of ridicule and harassment and even physical abuse by family members in wider social circles. But whether punishment by judicial authorities or abuse and ostracism by families and acquaintances, we should not underestimate the tensions and the consequences involved in being a Christian. So I believe that the answer to Hurtado's question is firmly embedded in our passage today. That is, in the Gospel of John and other passages like it, such as with profound implications for missional ecclesiology, what we'll be studying this collaborative, but particularly for the church going forward and how we would go forward in a world that's increasingly post-Christendom. And again, I've explained what I mean by that. Where increasingly Christianity is going to be marginalized and even ostracized as it was in the first three centuries as even being immoral. 
as not respecting the gods of the world and the ways in that it comes. You see, for assuming the disciples took these last words to them exclusively, the words that we just heard read, to heart, just days before he was crucified, spoken to them, it makes perfect sense, especially given our now Christendom-inspired way of thinking about Christianity and mission. To see it as anything less than stupid to become a Christian in the first three centuries of the church would be the way we would today as Christians think about what they did, to be honest. You hear it all the time. As if to be passive is to be impotent. As if to love your enemies is to hate justice. As if to seek reconciliation is not nearly as powerful as seeking dominion in Rome, in their case. You see, I think it is as well applicable to what we do today in our congregational meeting to call a man to the pastoral ministry uh, or to give an increase of responsibility in this case. At the cusp of a post-Christendom era, very similar then to pre-Christendom, and our passage concerns us today. For Christendom as we have known it since the fourth century, Constantine, in all of its variations, even increasingly irrelevant and becoming a distant memory, especially up here in New England as it's spreading throughout the West. I'll explain more as we get into it. But let's first pray and, and see if we can understand this passage, and I'm going to spend a lot of time in order to help us understand the Christians of the first three centuries, I'm going to spend a lot of time on what those who persecuted them, those who were not sympathetic with them, said about them in those first three centuries. You're going to hear a lot of quotes and a lot of wonderful and enticing information today. But the purpose is for you to be able to then go to this passage and imagine now the people I'm about to describe to you as they were known by their city, how would they have heard these passages? How would they have responded to it? And what kind of power would that have given them to turn literally the world upside down without having one ounce of the powers of this world at their disposal? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I know for me and the studies that you've enabled me to do, it's just been profound to see how powerful your word is when people just believe it and live it and take it to heart. So, Father, work that miracle in our hearts that you worked in that first three centuries. Help us to hear it and believe it and take it to heart. By the work of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me tell you the story a little bit. About 30 AD, a new religious movement appeared initially, comprising of circles of Jews and the Roman Judea area, in which this person, Jesus, and again, this is from a historian's perspective, this person, Jesus, was central to the circles and to the beliefs and practices of these people. At some point thereafter, scholars debate exactly when, but certainly by the latter part of the first century AD, Adherents of this movement began to be referred to as Christians, initially by outsiders, 
But by the second century, the movement came to known as Christianity. Now, within a couple of years of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, this movement had spread over sites and other sites as well from Judea. It spread to Damascus. Then it spread to Antioch in ancient Syria today. Within a decade or two, it had spread to a number of other cities in the present-day Turkey and Greece, and then to Rome, and likely to other places as well, such as Alexandria, Egypt. Now, initially it made up of Jews. The movement also quickly expanded to trans-ethnicity to include non-Jews, Gentile converts, that is, former, quote, pagans, end quote. I use pagans as a technical term, as a scholarly term, defining a kind of belief system that had a plethora of gods, local deities, national deities, economic deities, ship deities, agricultural deities. It's this plethora of a pluralistic matrix of gods that were people, of people who had that view that were converting to Christianity. Now, from the perspective of pagan writers, such as an early second century writer named Tacitus, I quote, Christians are typically described as dissonant and out of step, and as intention in the larger culture of the, same, of the time of all sorts of matters. He goes on to say, Christians are hated for their abominations, and Christians are promoting deadly and dangerous superstitions. Tacitus claims that under Nero's orders, an eminent multitude of Christians were arrested who were convicted of hatred of the human race. Hatred of the human race. And then were subjected to various hideous forms of death. And in addition to suffering mockery of every sort, they were torn apart by dogs, nailed to crosses, set on fire in order to serve as human tortures to Nero's nighttime spectacles, end quote. As well, from early Christian texts, we get the sense that at local levels there were often hostile rumors and public harassments and occasionally even local judicial proceedings against Christians well before Nero's infamous actions, and such as continued throughout into the later third century. It's important to hear that they were socially marginalized from all the sectors of society. It would have been difficult thus for Christians to have participated in a wide variety of social occasions without having to consider whether they could do it in good conscience. A refusal to take part in the religious ceremonies of a household guild or a city would have aroused puzzlement, even suspicion and resentment and anger from other pagans. It was awkward because everything was permeated by the gods, by those deities that were named as gods, but no different, I have to explain this to you, as how we would define an idol today without the name of a god. For they were at their core buttresses, validations for the idolatries that we would describe as Christians as idolatries as pertaining to economic systems, social systems, political theories, anything in which the people believed would make them flourish. 
there was a God that they venerated in an attempt to produce that flourishing through those sectors. An unwillingness to join, for instance, the daily acknowledgement of the guardian spirits of the home would likely have been regarded by others in the home as registering some sort of disloyalty to the household. Why can't you? We, we don't mind if you worship your God. Why can't you come and respect us for ours? You'd be surprised to hear, it'll come up probably in some of the more quotes, how often, how often they accuse Christians of being intolerant. Intolerant. Think about that. One second century witness, Pliny the Younger, is described, who was an under uh, emperor, explained why, the punish, uh, why he punished Christians in his local context. Predicting that his firm actions would stem to spread and restore the revenues of pagan temples that were almost deserted. You see, the economic system was directly tied to patronage of these deities. When Christians began to be converted and, and spread like wildfire, it became a threat to the whole economic system. Along with celebrations of the tradition of the rights of God. Evidently, the social and economic effects of Christian withdrawal from the worship of the gods or simply the fear of such effects may have been at least one cause for the denunciation of Christians, as well as other likely other local deities. Celsus of 175, 180 AD wrote this. He alleged that Christians welcomed the worst kinds of people into their fellowship in an unfavorable contrast with other religious movements of that time. He posited rightly, invited only those who had purified themselves through extended training and testing. Underline that. Through extended training and testing. Another, another uh, I'll get to it later, but just to help you understand the context of that, another second century writer described them as the most bookish people he had ever met. He also accused Christians of destroying families by promoting tensions between children and their parents. And he alleged that Christians were antisocial and comprised a threat to the civil and political order of Rome. As noted by Herdodo, this historian, we see a disdain expressed in a full-scale critique of Christianity entitled The True Word, which was written around 175 AD. And in it, speaking as a pagan, Intellectual of that time, Celsus lays out a running contrast between then academic elite and philosophies underpinning pagan religion versus the teachings of this upstart Christianity cult. Clearly meant to convert Christian academics back to paganism. How did they do that? He says the way he's going to do it is, quote, by shaming them out of their religion, end quote making them look stupid. With other pagan critics, Celsus portrayed Christians as simpletons, and he characterized their teachers as quack physicians, charlatans passing off simplistic teachings, but unable to take part in the real philosophical debate. He contended Christians questioned the validity of the gods upon which the social and political order rest, and so were guilty of impiety. The Christians in their madness, he says, this would provoke the wrath of our gods and the undoing of our social and political order would fall into anarchy and chaos. Maybe you're getting a sense for why they were persecuted 
Sometimes we simplify that. It was very complicated and very deep. Now, what would paganism look like today? What are the gods that are so hallowed, even if not called gods, in a post-secular, post-Christendom context? The situation is this. Christians suffered for being Christians without access to all the various power institutions of that day. Paganism was like Christendom today, or at least of yesterday, with cultural hedge money as their strategy for expansion. Pagan nationalism versus Christian nationalism, things like that. And the dominant pagan view about Christians was very, very negative, as we've seen, often involving wild rumors about the general populace and more studied ridicule, negative characterizations of Christianity. So that's the context of the first three centuries. What would you expect? What's happening here to the Christian movement? Remarkably, remarkably. In the early 4th century, not long after what was the most severe such persecution, which began in 303 AD under Diocletian, the movement obtained emperoral approval from, from Emperor, Emperor Constantine, and in due course it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now listen to what I'm about to say. Here's the thing. Why did Constantine do that? Christianity did not become successful through Constantine giving it imperial approval. That's not the true story. The establishment of Christendom, that is. Instead, Constantine even himself explains that Christianity, he adopted Christianity because it had already become so successful despite all the earlier efforts to destroy the movement. Just step back and think about that for a while. Christianity flourished in an era where Christians had nothing of Christendom. There was pagan nationalism versus Christian nationalism. They wanted no part of that. Such as to enjoy any civil rights or influence in the culture at large, that was not their pursuit. People wanted to become Christians, though. And this is in spite of not having a situation where Christians enjoyed some level of cultural acceptance or popularity or political influence, or economic access, or military or civil protections, and most important, public sympathy, all not in existence in the first three centuries. What does that say about the current neo-Christian nationalisms and the current movements that dominate so much of our Christian sectors, who feel and sense Christianity or Christendom is losing and whose ambition is to revolt. Revolution ceases, seizes power. But here these Christians were. Now let me explain a little bit more. In spite of the political opposition and other localized harassment and persecutions across following decades, the movement continued to grow, and it grew fast, even to outgrow paganism in the first and three centuries. Just to take a set of estimates often cited by scholars, there may have been about 1,000 Christians in 40 AD, about 7 to 10,000 in 100 AD, about 200,000 and a bit more by 200 AD, and by 380 
that is during the period of the worst persecutions, it grew to 6 million people by the time we get to Constantine. One recent estimate of the number of Christian sites where there were communities of Christian posits hundreds or so, many of these comprising several household-based groups by 100 AD, 200 or 200 sites by 200 AD, 400 I said sites by 200, and then in the early third century, the Christian writer Tertullian claimed that Christians were numerous, quote, all but the majority in every city. That is total, quote, domination. In short, according to human standards and worldly expectations based on an assumption that Christianity will flourish as Christian hegemony flourishes, this story of early Christianity is a remarkable phenomenon, to be sure, as other analysts and historians have noted throughout. Think about it. Among other great developments across a similar period of time, this one of the period of A.D. 100 to 400 or 350 might fairly be given pride of place in the whole history. It is simply the case that no other cult and empire grew at anything like the same speed, says historian Hurtado. And so the question that he asked is what I've asked earlier. Why on earth, how on earth did this happen? What explains Christianity's remarkable success in the first and third centuries? How did they do it? That's where we turn to our passage. Now read these words like you've never read them before. A read them to a people who are already experiencing by the time of Christ's death, that dissonance, that marginalization, that sense of no hope whatsoever, even as if uh, for them to be able to seize Roman and to take over, that was of a sect of nationalist Jews that were rebuked by Christ throughout his ministry. The answer is found in this incredible last discourse. The words of Christ spoken to the disciples right before he died, beginning in chapter 14 all the way through chapter 20. We've just picked a portion of it. So let's look at it. Four things. Let's look at Christ's promise of greater things, success to the disciples, backed by the resurrection and ascension ministry of the Holy Spirit. Promise success. That's what they heard. You should expect greater things than I have done already. Wow. How would that empower them to walk out thinking whatever he told us to do this one raised from the dead, who's clearly God, knows what he's doing. And we're going to take it to heart. Number two, he promised the continual personal relationship with the Father to the disciples, backed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This other, another, that is, this incredible intimate love relationship that was unique to Christianity, especially in comparison to paganism. We're going to look at that and how that question, show us the Father. You probably never understood that question. It makes total sense if you understand how Christianity was different from paganism. Third, Christ's promise of coming instructions to be trusted and backed by the Holy Spirit in the production of the New Testament scriptures 
in fulfillment to his promise that he would send the spirit of truth. And that he would produce for you all the things which I have not said. And empowered them to read it as, as if the words of Christ. That is, as to capture, persuade the minds of the world with, an, with a studied conviction. And in fourth, Christ called to become suffering servants as a strategy for winning the world. Not a concession, as a proactive strategy for reaching the world. Knowing that to reach the world with the powers of the world would not be to reach their hearts and their souls, but to reach them with suffering love would win their hearts and souls. Those are the four things right there. I pretty much preached the sermon to you, but let me just show it to you briefly in the scripture. First of all, this first promise concerning the greater things. I won't spend much more time, but just imagine how they must have heard this audacious promise based on the promise of the Holy Spirit that, quote, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater than these will he do. He goes on to say, I will ask of the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now that word, another helper, is crucial. It links it to the, to the, to the same ministry of Christ. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world, I'm just going to tell you right now, they're not going to receive it. Do not Measure your success by them and the establishment receiving it. Because if neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, the Father, for he dwells with you. Now listen to that intimacy terms. He dwells with you, this Father, and will be in you, this Father, by virtue of the mystery of communion with the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, as you heard read, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the first answer, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, is why did this happen? Well, it all turns on this Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who would enable the Christians to do things greater than they could have ever possibly imagined just in your head, if you've been around Christianity, think about these words and how they just consistently and constantly show up in the writings of the apostles. You can see how they took it. Peter to the Ephesians, I'm praying for you Christians. You've gotten all the benefits of the cross. You've been saved by grace through faith. You've been atoned for in your sins. You've got an inheritance in heaven. And then he says, but I still pray for you that you would manifest the immeasurable power and greatness of God in accomplishing things that you can't even imagine. That's the man who heard and understood these words, begging his church to hear them. I'm going to go on to two. The Holy Spirit. And how does the Spirit manifest himself in this power? Really, it's the next three points I'm making. Secondly then, or first, if you put it in that phrase, his promise of continued personal relationship. Now here's where you need to understand something about pagan religion. Pagan religion differed in, in an inc 
incredible way from Christianity, very important way. In pagan religion, there was all these deities, but there was this unknown, ultimate, transcend deity over all the deities. And this high and ultimate deity seemed so transcendent as to be entirely inaccessible and even uninterested in the world of humanity. You remember Paul, don't you? Areopagus? He didn't tackle all the plethora of deities. He knew those were, were, were yet to be tackled. But he went after this throne to the unknown God. That's the deity I'm talking about. Moreover, positing this great deity seems to have made no impact on the cultic deities that were to be observed. Indeed, since the high God was so not approachable, you were to continue to address yourself to the various popular or particular deities for favors and needs. This unknown God that Paul speaks of in Acts at the Apocalypse was just out there. In other words, people did not select this or that deity as their personal God to the exclusion of others. They couldn't imagine a God that was jealous, the ultimate God who was jealous and passionate in his love for them, in his mind for them. Positing this deity seems to have made no impact. Uh, I said, this high God was not approachable. You were to continue to address yourself to the various under gods and their favors and their needs. And is this unknown God, of course, that we can't reach. But they did typically approach or invoke or appeal to various deities as was appropriate to the occasion. To repeat, there were various divinities linked with various sites, occasions, venues, spheres of life, and these gods typically had individual portfolios, basically. There was no worry in this world that any one deity would be offended because it wasn't personal. They were not personal. If you offered worship to other deities as well, your personal deity wouldn't be offended. You're just respecting their deity. Pluralism and the, and the tolerance of that, or the tolerance system of that pluralism was in effect the God, if you will, the system God of Rome. Outright refusal to worship deities were deemed bizarre, antisocial, and worse still, impious and irreligious. But to not venerate one's particular identity, well, that was personal. You reject my personal God while he or she or it wasn't even that, it, it is not personal. You offend me. Whatever their identity was, they took offense. In contrast, this ultimate high deity, unknown and inaccessible pagan worshipers, was known and accessible to Christians. This is particularly where the religious beliefs and stance of early Christianity stood out as different. Christians were expected to avoid taking part in the worship of any deity other than the one, that, uh, the one God of the biblical tradition because that God was personal. Father. Father. This was outlandish, this notion. But at once the source of the greatest offense and the greatest attraction. The world was starving for the ultimate power and deity to love them. And this father was portrayed as a loving father who sees them, 
who loves them, wants to save them and redeem them and lead them to green pastures. That was unthinkable in this world of impersonal deities. And of course, in early Christian teaching, God's love was particularly demonstrated in his son, Jesus Christ, who came to reveal that love to the world. Now listen to those words that I just read. If you've known me, you've known the Father. He is in me and in you by the Holy Spirit. This Father loves you and you love him. Which then gets him to that next point. Well, how would we know? Because you would believe in his truth. A truth that's not just right and good, but loving and caring. This motivation is everywhere in the epistles. Again, Paul in Philippians. I want to know him. And how does he want to know him? I mean, he's already known him for something like 16 years. Oh, I want to go deeper with this God. I want to go deeper with him. I want to share in his suffering so that I can know him more intimately. Ah, oh, now it's starting to make sense. This was eros. This was love. The way we now depict love in Hollywood was closer to the love of Christians to God than perhaps we'd thought. The kind of love that would give and sacrifice anything for this God because this God loves me. It's proven that love. I will read and listen to his words and I will take it to heart and I will do anything and suffer anything to keep his words because I know him and I love him. These are sentiments that the pagan system could not even think about. And it attracted them. They were moved. Their hearts were, that is. You see, 1 John, to depart from this world, he says, I go to the Father. Where I am going, you cannot come. To which the Lord then said, and that's the occasion of this question, Lord, then show us the Father. Why Father? Because it was a particularly classic Jewish way of saying, Lord, will we still have a personal relationship with our transcendent God without you? Show us the Father. Don't leave us without this love. I wish I could give you a history of Father as a figure in the Old Testament and the way that was explained, but I won't do that. And so Jesus' answer, he says, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You're not going to be abandoned. You're not going to be without that Father. Don't worry. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. And he's talking about their period after the ascension. Not heaven. Their period. They won't see me because I won't physically be here, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. By this other 
Holy Spirit that will make that transaction real. Notice the incredibly intimate language of that passage. I in you, Father, you in me, Jesus still present. And then he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, manifest myself to him. This is just a love letter. A dripping, beautiful love letter to these people who are scared to death. The world was literally turning upside down against them. They heard it. They listened to it. And how? I will send this other. I mean, just listen to the words of the apostles. Paul characterizing to the Thessalonian believers' response to the gospel specifically is turning away from idols. And he says, to serve the true and living God and to await his son from heaven. And he goes on here and he, and he talks about this personal, intimate way that God has revealed himself to the Thessalonians. And on it goes. That brings me to the third. So what would this love look like? What would it mean to really love and to respond to God's love in the life of a Christian. And this is where he promises the coming instructions to be trusted and backed by the Holy Spirit, which we know is the production of the New Testament, according to Peter and all the way else. Listen to the way, again, the world perceived these Christians in the first three centuries. Going back to Pliny, he was a friend of Tacitus, and he wrote to the Emperor Trajan that he first gave them three opportunities, these Christians, to renounce their faith. And if they steadfastly refused, despite his threats, he either ordered their execution or, if they were Roman citizens, had them sent to room for further trial so as to regard them. And in his words, I gave them three opportunities to do what is just everyone would do. What's so wrong about just respecting the household you visit and venerating with them their deity for their sake. And here's what he says, I'm quoting. These people are unacceptable obstinacy. They have an unacceptable obstinacy. Obstinacy. An unbending perversity, end quote. He clearly thought that being a Christian was itself sufficient ground. Just being a Christian... Why? Because they were obstinate. They were stubborn. Another contemporary described Christians as the most stubborn people he's ever met in his life. They won't bend. You have to ask the question, why? How? Well, listen to the words of Christ again. He says, listen, this Holy Spirit... I'm going to give you the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth, in contrast to deception, this paraclete. That word means advocate, literally, to advocate for the truth. An advocate with the Father, and this function is attributed to the Spirit himself by Christ and elsewhere by the apostles. You think about the women of the well and worship in spirit and in truth that came together. Interestingly, in the Qumran literature, Jewish writings, the paraclete was in contrast to the spirit of deception, always. Thus, against a role of witness, or again, a role of witnessing and advocating and defending the true God and his true purposes and mind and intent. 
And so Christ says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, notice that, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So many words, I'm calling you to be those people. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 14, but the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. 15, at the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in spirit of truth, spirit of truth, spirit of truth. Peter later explains these words. He heard them himself, remember. And he says to this, his, his letter in, in Peter, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he goes on to say, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but by men spoke from God as they were carried away by the Holy Spirit. Early Christianity was unusually bookish. In the lecture I'll give, I'll share that with you, but I won't do it here. It'd probably bore you. But it's unbelievable. Just to give you one anecdotal, if you compare the writings of Christians to the writings of even the philosophers, they were voluminous in comparison. These people were always studying, says those people who knew these Christians. Always studying. They meet together on Sundays and they study this word. They come together in their homes and they study this word. They've, they're philosophers like Paul write long, long letters. Some of you have experienced that. I suspect some long sermons as well. In other words, there's simply no analogy for this variety, vigor, and volume in Christian literary output, according to one historian in that day. Let me say that again. There is simply no analogy for the variety, vigor, and volume in Christian literary input. For other religious movements of the day, such as Mithraism or the cult of Jupiter or Decadence, blah, 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 nothing to compare. He talks about how careful they were to transcribe these letters and to disseminate them, taking days and years to do so. And that leads me to my final point. Armed with this conviction, knowing that they had the truth, the true truth, as long as they stuck to that truth, nothing contrary to, nothing beside the truth of God and his word, then whatever hell that brought to them, they would take with joy. They would take with privilege. Think about that, my brothers and sisters. What would it take to have that kind of conviction? What kind of study? What kind of insight? What kind of due diligence must they have done to say, okay, I understand these words from the Holy Spirit as from the Father. And now I'm confident that I'm right according to my Father. And that's the conviction that was the fuel coupled with their love, truth and love, that then said, I will honorably suffer. Next point. Christ's call to become suffering servants is a strategy to embrace the suck of, comp of completing Christ's suffering in this world. Just think about what was written after these words and even our own scripture. Acts. 
Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonoring or, 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 or dishonor for, suffering dishonor for the name. That over and over and over and over and over again is what the, Christ, the, un, the pagan world saw. Over and over and over again they say it. I've never seen people suffer so happily. Colossians 1.24, now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Really, Paul? You're not resentful? And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Did you hear that? You mean Christ's sufferings were incomplete? No, not for your atonement. Yes, for his witness. Let me say it again. No, they were not incomplete for your justification. Yes, they were incomplete for the conversion of the world. 1 Peter, approximately 80 to 180, they are now undergoing a fiery ordeal, but should rejoice about that, he says, as this is a means that they can share in Christ's sufferings. Reproach for the name of Christ, considered to be a blessing. It's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. This view of suffering that we in Christendom can't even imagine. Christendom, the whole point it's to seize the power that we might not suffer. Suffering the injustices of the world. This movement embraced the suffer. A couple of second century commentaries. Now I'm quoting from the famous physician Galen. <coughs> Excuse me. In 129 um, AD, he was very critical of Christians. He expressed a concern and admiration for Christians, particularly mentioning their courage in the face of death. They scared him, he says, and their self-restraint to fight back. He started to see something in the power of turning the cheek and loving your enemy, wanting to reconcile them, redeem them, rather than defeat them and curse them. <coughs> Excuse me. Lucian of Soda, second century. The poor wretches have convinced themselves first and foremost that they are going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody in order to die. The Epistle of Diogenetus. The text addresses three main questions. What God do Christians believe in and worship? What is the nature of the strong affliction that they have for one another? Or affection, I should say. And what, why was this new race in the way of life coming to the world now and not before? And he goes on to explain that. He says how it is that they follow the local customs and their dress and food and other aspects of life. And yet also they demonstrate this remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship in the world, but not of the world. Sound familiar? The text goes on then to assert that Christians certainly live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. He says, though dishonored, slandered, and insulted, and cursed, they bless in return and offer respect to those who do so. 
When unjustly punished, they rejoice as though brought to life again. Now, how would they have heard these words? Do you have ears to hear? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world before the world hates you. Therefore, the world will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you because they do not know him who sent me. He's, he's literally constructing pity and sympathy for the people who are hurting them. They're poor. They're without the truth. They're ignorant. How can you hate them? They know not what they do. Sound familiar? It's interesting in Luke 6, I did a compline briefly on it this week. It was the reading. It just happened to be the reading of the, of the liturgy, of the lectionary, I'm sorry, uh, for this Wednesday. It's the context where there's blessing and woe. In the, and some people call it the Beatitudes, but it's a horrible term for it. But here's what he says. He's just, he's just called the disciples by name to follow him to, and to build his church. And right after that, he then says things that sadly, sadly, sadly have been interpreted totally out of the context. And so it becomes passages that are applied to social justice or individual justice or whatever it is, class stuff. But think about these words now as they would have heard it after they knew it was said to them right after they were called to go out and be disciples of Christ. He says this, he came down off the mountain where there's a multitude, the disciples were with him having just been called to the ministry and he says this publicly, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. That's who he's talking about. And he said, blessed are you when you become poor. For whose sake are they becoming poor and marginalized from the economy? Of course, what he just said, my sake. For yours will be the kingdom of God. Don't worry, you're going to win. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and scorn your name as evil on account of me. Now who are we talking about? This isn't about, look, you can go to a lot of passages in the Bible and deal with, with all kinds of persecution and oppression that's related to social justice issues or individual class issues or whatever. You can do that. Okay, there's systemic stuff out there. We can go there. But this passage is wanting to speak to us as Christians who take him seriously. And he says this. Again, let me read this phrase. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Really? For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Remember what Cajun said? It's as if they suffer thinking that it's bringing them new life. Wow. He goes on and does the woes to all those who would, who would persecute them, basically. And I won't read him. And then he says this. After he says, woe to you, all people who speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. In other words, who treat you nicely, the sheep and, and sheep, the, the, the uh, what do you call it, the thief in sheep's clothing genre here. Who are going to look nice, talk nice, speak nice, even talk your language, but will betray you. And he says this. But I say to you who hear these things, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I got to stop. You just can't make this stuff up. Let me apply it to the pastoral ministry and to you very quickly. Think about what pastors and Craig, you're entering into even a higher level as you already have. In order to attain this knowledge of Christ, Paul explains that you must share in Christ's bankruptcy. It is the call of the vow of poverty. All the things he formerly had counted as assets in Jewish hegemony, his ethnic heritage, his educational background, his ecclesiastical pedigree, his ethical standards, all of this stuff he said was what? Liabilities. <laughs> Furthermore, compared to the superlative joy of knowing Christ, Paul calculated that his religious achievements added up to nothing more than a filthy pile of refuge. The best thing, the most valuable thing, the most surpassing thing that was in order to know Christ, according to Paul, and hearing these words we've heard from Jesus, was to be found when Paul gave up everything else to be united to Jesus Christ and receiving him in his salvation. In other words, the true pastor's heart is revealed in Paul's confession to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sharing, suffering, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There's an interesting paradigm that I know we studied when we looked at a paper by Phil Riken. How this first suffering, then glory paradigm should, have, should apply to the pastoral ministry particularly. In other words, Phil Riken says, pastoral ministry is not a matter of life and death, but a matter of death, then life. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This order is crucial. Seeing this world not as where our hope for outward happiness is, is to be found, is the key to being faithful. The key. But the next world is where we'll get our reward. Even as we live in this world with the joy of intimacy and future happiness fulfilled. Stu Weber, who's quoted by Phil Riken, said this, The pastor who is most Christ-like is not the one who is most gloriously fulfilled in every moment of his ministry, but the one whose ministry has in, its, in it unbelievable elements of crucifixion. And what of his followers? What happened to them? Well, we just heard as much in the third, first through third century. This is the call. I know you know it. We talked about it. But it's to embrace the suck. It's to understand that if we're faithful to Christ, we're going to feel that suck, perhaps in ways that others don't. And yet that suck becomes our glory. And so it's so important that we take the lesson. One, you know, I charge you, if you will, uh, to truly continue, because I know you do, to study the Word of God and make that your absolute, nothing gives conviction to keep it, no matter what the people say. Nothing contrary to, nothing besides, only that which can be derived by the definitive teachings of the Holy Scripture. And then you go out and you won't bend. Of course, you're humble always to be shown additional material that would change your mind. And I've changed my mind several times 
and I know you have too. That's good. But we do it only when we're convinced of Scripture that we're wrong. For Christians, in an age that is coming, I warn you, we're already there. You will defect. You will defect unless you have established strong convictions as to your existential confession concerning the beliefs we know as the Christian faith. We know where this is going. History does repeat itself. You are entering into an era, I believe it with all my heart, where you're going to experience maybe not the political martyrdom, not soon at least, maybe, I don't know. But we will experience these local particular ways of being ostracized and ignored and marginalized as viewed as inhumane for our convictions. And that's where you'll need to study the scripture with your pastors. You'll reward your pastors because it's hard to teach to a people who don't want to be taught. You reward them when they make you work at knowing the scriptures. For they are protecting your souls. It's going to be like a drift in Hebrews. You won't defect the face with a big event. It'll just be slowly, 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 harder and harder and hard to subject yourself with an uncompromising loyalty to Jesus Christ. And easier and easier and easier to hear the morality of our world and want so desperately for the world to see us as moral and righteous. That's what will do it. It's the drift. Well, I'll stop there. I think I'm probably out of time. Pray for us this week as we engage these topics and others and pray for our church and pray for Christianity. This is a really powerful, I think, passage that we need to go look at again. Thank you. Amen.